This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think the thing that I came to understand the most is that this mythology I'd grown up with, one sort of John Wayne mythology of the you know the, the noble European who comes and settles this great wilderness, was completely wrong. And then the thing that I'd learned in university, this idea of the noble Native American as being almost this demigod who is superior in all ways to the invading Anglo hordes, was also completely false. What I came to understand is that people actually are all the same. People, in the end, for the most part, are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to protect their families, protect themselves, make sure that their kids and grandkids will be provided for. And when you look at the history of America, I mean, or probably of any country, you can look at it as a sort of a triumph if you want to use the sort of lens in which the, the moral cost of our actions doesn't matter as long as we get what we want. Or you can look at it as a tragedy if you look at the sort of, you know, the body count, the 10 million Native Americans killed and the, you know, the large numbers of European settlers, especially poor settlers who, who died on the frontier. But I think you sort of have to look at it, be able to, to switch lenses and look at it both ways. You have to understand why it's a triumph and why it's a tragedy at the same time. And almost all, the history of all countries is basically like this. The United States has always been fascinated by the myth of its origins. But how did it really become one nation? Hello, it's Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. On this week's show, American novelist Philip Mayer, whose outstanding second book, The Sun, was nominated for this year's Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, discusses Dog Eat Dog, Truth, The Comanche Nation, and The Loss of the American Dream. And in keeping with the theme of America and its somewhat shaky, violent foundations, we look at a book which asks, how did a disparate set of states become the most powerful nation on earth. David McConnell, Professor of Genetics at Trinity College Dublin, reviews Simon Winchester's latest offering, The Men Who United the States. This is a show about myths and dreams, science and progress, transformation and fight. But first, Philip Mayer, author of American Rust and The Sun, discusses the thin line between good and bad, right and wrong. But of course they hadn't done anything. They'd all been born to the right parents, in the right neighbourhoods. They went to the right schools, had all the right social instructions, taken all the right tests. There was simply not a chance they would fail. They worked hard, but always with the expectation they would get what they wanted. The world had never shown them anything different. Very few of them had earned their place. Everyone admitted how spoiled they were. But underneath, there was always a presumption that they deserved it. Those were the gripping and tense words of Philip Mayer from his novel American Rust. Philip Mayer's books are meaty, vast, visceral and intense. In 2009, Philip's first book, American Rust, was shortlisted for the Centre for Fiction First Novel Prize, nominated for Amazon's Best Book of the Year and was longlisted for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. His latest book, The Sun, is arguably even better. Though be warned, 
It's gritty, disturbing and very, very violent in parts. Now, Philip's writing style has been compared to some of the greats of American literature, including the likes of Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Cormac McCarthy and William Faulkner. And without doubt, he deserves such recognition. Well, a few weeks ago, Philip rocked into town for the Dublin Writers' Festival, just on the back of his lovely 40th birthday. And lucky for me, I got some time to spend with the man who's now been hotly tipped as America's next great writer. I asked Philip how he copes with that pressure. You try not to think about it, to be honest. Of course, you are always comparing yourself to, to people, um, you know, for me, Joyce, Faulkner, Virginia Woolf, Hemingway, people like that, using them as a sort of, you know, guiding uh, star, I guess. But I try not to take my work too seriously once I'm done with it. So when I'm actually working on it, I put everything I have into it. I don't hold anything back. Uh, my entire life revolves around doing these things. For instance, the, the last book took about five years to write. But after it's done, I think it's important to not be too proud. You sort of put these things out of your mind. And, and when people criticize you, or in this case, mostly compliment the work, that too you cannot let stay in your mind very long. You have to kind of let, you know, whether it's a compliment or an insult, uh, you have to let it kind of pass through your head. In the end, the work has to be coming from inside you and, and from no one else. Uh, you know, there can't be any other voices in your, in your mind when you're working. So you're able to let go of one of your creative children to move on to another? Yeah, the funny thing is, so The Sun, which you know, I'm still, I came out about uh, a year ago, and of course I'm still touring for it, but I now, psychologically anyway, I think about it as old work. You know, I'm on to new projects. Um, some friends and I are adapting The Sun for a TV network in the US, but but I've talked to writers who like to, the characters continue to live in their minds, and I guess that's true to, to some extent, but I think it's really, in some way you sort of have to kill it off. You know, when, when the last word is written, I'm on to, to something else. Philip, can we talk about your latest novel? Part of the novel is set with the history of the Comanche Nation and it's quite disturbing in parts. It's very vivid, very violent and it tells quite an extraordinary social and political tale. I wanted to write about the creation mythology of the US, what it is we all come from and I realized it was not possible to do that without talking about the Native Americans. The Comanches were kind of the dominant tribe of the Southern Plains. They were probably the most powerful tribe in the U.S. during the time they existed. They were a culture of, of sort of a, a raiding and warrior culture. They were not agricultural at all. They essentially existed by stealing horses, making war with other tribes, and, and you know, then making war with the Spanish, the Mexicans, and then finally with the Anglo, the Americans in quotes, who, who showed up from the East. I'm friends with some Comanches now. They're, of course, completely integrated into American society. They're doctors and lawyers and car mechanics and everything that you would you would expect. And so when I, when I was researching the book, I used them as, as kind of cultural references. But because so much of the book takes place in the past, it takes place on the frontier in the 1840s and 50s, you know, the Comanches, of course, have no more connection to that world and the skills you need to survive in that world than, than most normal Anglo people do. So I spent a lot of time doing tracking classes. Um, I shot and helped butcher uh, a few buffalo. I talked myself to hunt with a bow, killed a few deer and ate them and, you know, tanned their hides and, you know, learned a lot about native plants and such. So I learned all these kind of Comanche skills, but I did not learn them from the Comanches because they're, you know, they're as modern as the rest of us now. Some of the descriptions in the book are quite detailed in terms of blood and guts. And there's been, you've been criticised for that from some people, but obviously it's all historically accurate. The sort of two competing mythologies we have in the US, one is the, the idea, uh, I guess you could say the more conservative idea, that all these Native Americans were these very peaceful, people who were you know very in touch with the earth who only made war when they absolutely had to and this sort of dances with wolves way of uh, simplifying these it's almost a, frankly a noble savage mentality 
And then coming from the other side, you have this idea that the Anglos were kind of the noble people. We went in, I guess that's the more conservative idea, that, that people like us went in to this essentially uninhabited continent. And sure, there were a few people there. And sure, we unfortunately took a little bit of their land. But in the end, it was it was sort of us that were doing the noble thing. And, and, and we were the ones who were attacked by the Indians. And so, so, you know, when you watch any Old West or any John Wayne movie, of course, the Anglo is in the position of the sort of innocent, brave man or, or woman. And the Indians are always the bad guys. Both of these mythologies are, are completely false. Certainly, every inch of North America was inhabited when people like us arrived. The entire continent was at its carrying capacity for, for humans. There was no unclaimed land. There was no real wilderness in the sense that we think of wilderness as, as uninhabited. And certainly, we took every inch of the continent by force, and there were probably 10 million people living there, and they all died. Some of them, most of them were killed by disease. We brought many we killed with bullets and knives and things. And so, on one hand, why, while we absolutely did take America, the entire thing was taken by force, the Native Americans were essentially doing this to themselves for the most part. The level of violence in North America was no different than the level of violence in, say, Europe. You know, the, the reason the Comanches became so powerful is they literally hunted and killed and butchered all the other tribes around them. And when you look at the history of, of Native Americans, for the most part, again, it's no different than Europe or Asia. It's strong tribes taking from the weak, taking land, taking resources, taking women and children, in many cases, as slaves. You know, like people are just people, which is quite obvious, but because that fact doesn't lend itself to being mythologized and doesn't mm. lend itself as a way to explain why, you know, say one culture is better than, than another, we, we tend to forget it. And of course, it was butchering on both sides. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, for sure. And, and, you know, the book is quite accurate in terms of its depiction of, of violence. This is a very violent time in history. Again, the entire continent is taken by force. You have no area that there were not Indians who, who'd been living there for, in some cases, 15,000 years. But the people who took the land were generally not soldiers. The people who took the land were generally lower middle class American citizens. So, you know, they had their rifle, they went and settled this land, which almost always involved killing Indians or at least driving them, them, them off. And then, of course, the Indians, certain tribes were quite violent. They, I guess the agricultural tribes tended to be less violent, but that was only about half of the tribes in the U.S. You know, the rest really were warrior societies, similar to the Spartans, you know, um, you know or the Mongols or something like this. And your book looks at the pursuit of wealth from one particular family of settlers. And it's a very nasty, grisly tale on how wealth can corrupt and also the disintegration, moral disintegration that comes with that. Yeah, so I followed uh, essentially a very typical family called the McCulloughs from the settlement of the frontier in about the 1840s through the U.S. Civil War, and um, they become a kind of cattle dynasty. Then into the 20th century, they become a very modern sort of oil dynasty, like the Bushes that we all, we would all sort of recognize from Dallas or something, something like this. And it was important to me to look at history through the lens of these people, because that is the only way you actually begin to understand how the land was settled and what choices were made. And instead of seeing history as a sort of vast antiseptic thing that happens in books, you actually see it as a series of human decisions. In this case, I think when you look at history, what you see is that the people who shape it the most are often the people who, let's say they have a very flexible moral sense. And so they're willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead. The people who have the ability to kind of project their ego or project their will onto the world and accomplish their goals are usually not the people who have a very strict philosophical sense of right and wrong. And now, of course, this is true of all countries. And of course, in hindsight, what we generally tend to do is we tend to assign these very strong moral traits to to these people who are are sort of national founders, when in reality, those people tend to be the opposite. The people who who generally have, I've found, the sort of strongest moral sense, or I guess you could say that the least moral flexibility, the, the, the greatest sense of right and wrong, are often people who have a hard time taking action. They're often people who are at least physically a bit, you know, railroaded or, or, or buffaloed by these other people. So 
You have this family founder, Eli, survives the Indian massacre, is raised briefly by the Comanches, fights in the U.S. Civil War, and after seeing enough of his family killed by his mid-40s, has become a bit of a monster. He's quite sympathetic at the beginning of the book, but by the end, you know, we recognize him as a typical cattle baron, oil man. I mean, he, this is a guy who is determined to get ahead at, at any cost, including his family. And he's very pragmatic and, I suppose, could be generously described as needs must. Absolutely. And so we see him, the violence of the front Frontier does transform him. And when he's lost, he loses his Anglo family, he loses his Comanche family, and the sort of final straw is when his wife is killed. And at that point, he, he realizes, okay, if I'm not taking this land, someone else is going to. If I'm not acquiring you know, this asset, if I'm not becoming wealthy, someone else is going to. His counterpoint is his son, Peter, who is kind of the moral voice of the book and comes to stand against his father in almost every way. He attempts to stop a massacre that his father perpetrates, fails. And so we, we see the sort of cycle of violence continue from generation to generation, and even the people inside the family become a bit powerless uh, to stop it. Can we talk about 